Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was a Greek follower of Jesus who was for years a trusted co-worker and traveling companion of Paul's. He had helped Paul in a number of crisis situations in the past, and in this letter we discover that Paul had assigned him the task of going to Crete, a large island off the coast of Greece, to restore order to a network of house churches. Now, Cretan culture was notorious in the ancient world. One of the Greek words for being a liar was kretidzo, to be a Cretan. These people were infamous for treachery and greed. Most of the men on the island had served as mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder, and the island cities were known as being unsafe, plagued by violence and sexual corruption. However, the island of Crete had many strategic harbors, and they serviced cities all over the ancient Mediterranean Sea. And so, from Paul's point of view, Crete was the perfect place to start a network of churches. Now, we don't know the details, but somehow these churches came under the influence of corrupt Cretan leaders. They said they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches. And so Paul assigned Titus with the task of going there to set things straight, and this letter provided the instructions. It has a pretty straightforward design. After a brief introduction, Paul gives Titus clear instructions about his tasks in the church. He then offers guidance about the new kind of household and then about the new kind of humanity that the gospel could create in these Cretan communities. Paul then closes the letter with some final greetings. You pray with me. Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to start by just reading um, Paul's opening in the letter. Just the first three verses. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. When we're children we always imagine what adulthood will be like, right? And we can't wait for it. We, you know, we imagine the, the freedom to do whatever you want, right? The, maybe the ability to eat unlimited amounts of junk food, right? Or to watch TV whenever you want, or to not have a bedtime, right? Stay up as late as you want, sleep in as late as you want. You're, you, you just picture being an adult as this life of complete and total freedom. And, and then one day you realize what a lie that is. Um, <laughs> and you look back as an adult and you think, my God, how could I have been deceived so much? Um, but we kind of, we tend to divide uh, our lives into these two ages, right? The age of childhood and the age of adulthood. And, and as children especially, we see them as, as distinctly different in terms of our freedoms, our abilities, and who we're going to be. And we see that as adults too, but it's a bit different when you're looking at through the eyes of a child. Paul makes this reference to uh, the, this truth that was promised before the ages began. And, and that's not like a, um, like a vague catch-all term for just, you know, before history or before time or whatever. Because in ancient Judaism, one of the core beliefs 
of, of especially Jews like Paul, is that all of history is divided into two ages. You have the present age and you have the age to come. And in the present age, we're, we're frustrated, we're constrained, and we're limited by a world that isn't all that it's meant to be yet. In the age to come is when real life begins. It's, that's when we get to live the life that God made us for. In, in the present age, wicked people who worship idols rule over God's people. But in the age to come, God's people will share in God's rule over his glorious new creation. That view is fundamental to the Jewish worldview of Paul's day and of Jesus' day. And it was a central part of Paul's view of history and of the world, even as he became a Christian. The key difference is that Paul believed that the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus brought the age to come forward into the present age. He believed that these two distinct periods of history overlapped like a Venn diagram and were living right in the middle. God had raised Jesus from the dead and installed him as king. The new age, therefore, has already begun for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And so he mentions this in the beginning of his letter to Titus, reminding him of these ages in history, because that's his way of of locating all of his work and all of his ministry within the larger context, within the bigger picture that they are working in. The new age has begun. We have access to a new kind of life, which he calls godliness. And all of this is based on the promise of God who does not lie because he's trustworthy and reliable. And you may have noticed that Paul mentions things like that, that he, he mentions that God is trustworthy or that God is not lying in a lot of his letters. And the reason is that the pagans he's writing to aren't used to the idea of a God who doesn't lie. If you've ever read Greek mythology, you know all of those gods lied all the time. <laughs> they were always up to something. They had all kinds of trickster gods, but even the gods who they didn't call trickster gods were pretty dishonest, and they had ulterior motives, and half of what you did in pagan worship was trying to appease the gods because you might have offended them because you don't know what they want from you. A core part of Paul's message is always that this God, the one true God, does not lie. He does not conceal his plans. He is not a trickster. And because of this, we can trust that all of this is true. The new world is breaking into the old. God's kingdom is invading this world. The age to come has arrived. And that's just the backdrop for everything else he does. But he wants to remind this man who he sent to this island to go preach the gospel of the bigger picture he's working in. He wants to draw his eyes up to remind him you're not alone. You're not, you're not just focused on this. This is what's going on around you and you have a part to play. And so we're going to skip ahead into chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. This is not a long letter, so I'm actually reading like half the total letter to you this morning. 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live 
self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. So if, if the future has arrived, if God's new age, the age to come, has been breaking into the present, then we are called to live in accordance with that. We can't just continue on as if we're waiting to be somewhere better because somewhere better is coming to us. If Jesus really was raised from the dead, if he really was crowned the king of the world, then we should be living as though we're already in his kingdom. In Jesus, we see the way things are going to be in the future. And that tells us how we should live in the present. The future is shaped by God's saving grace. And so our lives in the present have to anticipate that. But most people live in ways that are destructive and they turn their backs on God in doing so. And so he gives these, these kind of categories, three words that sum up how we are to live in anticipation of God's grace-filled future. Self-controlled, upright, and godly. The literal words in Greek are sober, just, and devout. So when he says sober or self-controlled, he means, look, we're, we're human. We're made in God's image to be his representatives on earth. Anything that makes us less human and more like an irrational animal diminishes us and ours the image of God. And that includes things like drunkenness. Letting yourself get out of control. But it's hardly limited to overindulging in alcohol, which is why very few translations just render it as the word sober, because we all associate that with one thing. But Paul meant it to refer to all kinds of things, because there are all kinds of things that we can indulge in that strip us of our rationality. Food can do it. Drugs, video games, television, sex, pretty much anything we find enjoyable can ensnare us that way. And it doesn't mean that we have to reject anything and everything that's fun and pleasurable. Far from it. God wants us to enjoy our life to the fullest. It does mean we have to be mindful of our consumption and know our limits. It's too easy and simplistic to reduce this to a statement about, about alcohol or anything like that because those are included, but it can be almost anything for any one of us. We all have our weaknesses. We all have the things that we like to overindulge in and even if it's something as seemingly innocent as food, if you allow yourself to do it often enough, you lose your rationality when you're around it. And when you do that, you become something a little less than truly human. You allow yourself to slip a bit. You're losing part of the image of God. That's why it so often gets rendered as self-controlled, to be in control of yourself to be able to be rational in all things, to know your limits. The second word is upright, but again, the literal word is just. If we really, truly understand what God's grace is all about, that, that God's love is going to rid the world of evil, and that 
the process has already begun in Jesus, then we cannot stand by and allow injustice to continue. We pursue justice and righteousness because the two are connected, and we strive to ensure that we ourselves are just people, and we work to make the world a more just place. But it starts with us. We strive to make sure that we, in our interactions with people, in, in, in our relationships with people, are just and upright. Because we all have responsibilities over other people. We all have people who depend on us. We have families. Some of us have employees. Some of us just have friends who tend to depend on us. We are called to be just and wise in all of those relationships. Because we start here with ourselves. And that justice spreads out and begins to change the world around us. The last one here is godly. And again, the, the literal word is devout or pious. Right? We strive for piety. We work toward holiness. We devote ourselves to prayer and to the reading of Scripture. We come and we worship together. We seek out God's presence and God's voice, and we strive and we yearn to be closer to Him. And we seek this above all else because that is the life for which Jesus has set us free. And because the other things are not possible if you don't do this one. You will not ever be a truly just or upright person if you are not a godly person. You will not be a truly self-controlled person if you are not a godly person. It all stems from this. We draw closer to God. We strive to imitate God. We, we look at the stories of Jesus in the gospel and use them as models for our life. And that brings us into chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So God himself is unbelievably kind and generous to us. God lavishes us with gifts and with love. He provides for us. He cares for us. And above all, he set us free from the power of sin and death. And he's done all of this as a free gift, one that we could not possibly have earned. And it's for this reason that God wants us to be generous and kind and gentle. Paul asks us to take a good hard look at ourselves and to take stock of the radical change that God has worked in us. 
And if we don't notice a radical change, then we've got a different problem. When we see the incredible ways in which God has transformed us, we remember that God has done this for us solely out of his own goodness and generosity, not because we deserved it. And so he invites us to respond in kind, to be generous, kind, and gentle, just as God is generous, kind, and gentle. So the reason we aren't supposed to speak evil of people or to be quarrelsome is that we are supposed to be people of God's love. We owe God our lives, and we should respond in gratitude by behaving in a manner which glorifies him. But more than that, when we are generous and kind and gentle to other people, whether they deserve it or not, whether they're people we know or not, whether they're people we like or not, we are manifesting God's love in their life. When we're children, we want all the freedom of adulthood without any of the responsibilities. And let's be honest, when we're adults, we want all the freedom of adulthood without any of the responsibilities too, right? That never changes. We do the same thing with our faith. We want all the benefits that come with God's promised future, but none of the responsibilities. Jesus has brought our future into the present. We can live now as if we are already in the kingdom. And the thing is, most of us discover that our adulthood is a lot less enjoyable than we thought it would be. But God's future, when we dwell with God forever, is even better than we can imagine. And counterintuitively, it comes with responsibilities attached. Because we have to change the way we live. And it's not about following rules. It's about recognizing where we are and when we are. We are in God's kingdom, in God's future. And that takes precedence over everything else. We're citizens of the kingdom before we're citizens of the United States. We're even, amazingly, we are even citizens of the kingdom before we are Texans. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow. This, this ought to color everything that we say and do and think. It should color how we vote. It should color how we spend our money and our time, how we talk, how we think, how we solve conflicts, even, even what we think the problems in the world are. Our, our entire worldview should be changed by that reality because our reality is different from everyone else's. We're in the kingdom. In a real sense, we're in the future. We know how it all ends, and we're called to change our lives accordingly. In effect, we're called to be a new kind of humanity. To reject the things of the past and to embrace God's future. Not so that we can escape from the rest of humanity, so, but so that we can drag as many of them with us into the future as possible. Titus was being sent to a place that was infamous among the pagans for its immorality. Even the bad people thought the Cretans were awful. This is like when your toddler knows that the other children are being immature and annoying, right? We have a picture, or we should in the slideshow. So this is my daughter and my niece, and uh, my, my daughter's on the right. You can see her little niece on the left is really angry about the sand. I don't know if you can see the clenched fists on my daughter, <laughs> who is so obviously frustrated with her cousin for crying and ruining the beach day, right? Look at, you can see the expression on her face, right? Like, be quiet. 
That's what it's like, right? Even, even, the, other, even the toddler knows the baby's being annoying. This is how bad the Cretans are. They're so immoral. They're so dishonest. They're so untrustworthy that even people whose entire religions revolve around gods that do not tell the truth know that those people are bad. And his job, the job that Titus has, is to go into that place and to help them learn to live like Jesus wants them to live. To live in God's kingdom. And this is only possible because of the resurrection. Because the new age is now overlapping with the present age. Crete is strategic for Paul. It's not just because it's well-positioned to help the gospel spread. It's got all these strategic ports and, and the message will go out throughout the world. It's not just that. It's because if Christ can change these people, the impact will be amazing. They'll be able to go and say, look what he did with the Cretans. Imagine what he can do for you. There is no one beyond the reach of the gospel. There is no one Jesus cannot transform. Titus himself is not expected to change anyone. He is just expected to proclaim the gospel and to model the way. That's it. That's all he needs to do. If he does that, God will do the rest. People will see in him God's incredible kindness and generosity and mercy, and they will want to respond in kind. And that's our job, too to proclaim the gospel, and to model the way. People should encounter God's kindness and generosity and gentleness in every interaction that they have with us. And it works. People respond to generosity and kindness and gentleness. Conflicts de-escalate, tempers cool, and emotions settle. When my toddler is throwing a tantrum, I don't throw my own tantrum in response, no matter how much I want to, right? It doesn't work. No, we respond with, with gentleness and with kindness, right? We keep our voice even. We don't yell. We deal gently with her. And she starts to settle down until eventually she's calm enough to tell us what's made her so upset in the first place. If we just responded the same way that she was behaving, if we got angry back, if we yelled back, it just makes things worse, as we all know from deep personal experience, right? Right? We can't behave like everyone else. There is a real sense in, in which, to draw the analogy forward, we're the adults in the room because we've been changed by Christ. Because we've seen the future and we know what it holds and because we've been transformed by his goodness. Just because everyone else is acting like children doesn't mean we get to. Titus was sent to one of the most dangerous and immoral places in the world, filled with mercenaries and violent men and all kinds of immorality. And he was told to love those people so deeply, so consistently, that they would change. He was told to be so kind and gentle towards these hardened, violent thugs that they would be able to see the error of their ways. He was called to be like a fountain of water in the desert. That's what we're called to be too. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.